Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about a common Calvinist proof text, which is John 17, which they'll do entire sermons about this. They'll say, hey, this, this proves our Calvinist soteriology. This proves our Calvinist concept of predestination, meticulous control, God irresistibly drawing people. I would look at these phrases about God bringing people to Jesus, things like that. That just means God has eternal, unalterable declaration, draws people irresistibly to Jesus, and in that way, they are saved. That's that's how the book of John is used, various sections of it. But you'll you'll notice um, a few things in it. It, do, it doesn't quite it doesn't quite line up. All right, so we start with John 17, 1. Let me share screen here. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So a few things to note about this. Number one, this is being written by presumably John. John's writing it. And who's his audience? Let's pull up uh, A.T. Robinson in his redating the New Testament. And he gives us some probable dates for the internal evidence, looking only at the internal evidence, not the historical criticism, looking at probable dates of all these books. So we could kind of figure out who the audience was by what the date of the book is. So you have John writing, and he's recounting Jesus praying, right? So Jesus' audience, his audience is uh, Christians and followers, perhaps around 30 AD. But John, in the book of John, his audience is someone a little bit different. We can kind of scroll down here to see kind of the dates that we're looking at. A 40 to 65 AD is probably his audience. It's a fledgling Christianity, a Christianity that's not very secure in theology. They don't have a security in a social setting. It's not an established religion. And if you recall, like the book of Hebrews, which uh, A.T. Robinson, John A.T. Robinson dates at 67 AD, that entire book is about the place and status of Jesus in the ancient world. These are things that have not been nailed down and solidified in their minds. And we're going to kind of see what's going on in John and what he's relating and to whom he's relating it and the purpose of it. For example, John didn't have to include this prayer in writing the gospel, right? Um, all, all scripture needs to be seen as advocacy. It's just not a hodgepodge bunch of stories for no apparent reason. There's purpose behind what is included and what is discluded in the tellings of the gospels. John, I think John is written a lot later than the other Gospels. The other Gospels, you know, 40 to 50, probably John's a little later than that. The audience seems to be a little bit more philosophically focused. It seems to be uh, wider than just the Gentile or just the Jews to the Gentiles as well. So it seems to be more multicultural, but it seems to be in the same sort of idea that you're preaching to an unestablished religion who's trying to make sense of Jesus in this new theology. So, back to our story. 
John the Baptist, or not John the Baptist, John, uh, presumably the disciple John, he's writing to individuals, the 40s, 50s uh, AD. He's recounting a prayer by Jesus in around 30 AD to his disciples, and let's see what it says. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Think about this language. Think of what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying a prayer. He's communicating something to God, presumably. When we read this, it, it, it seems very odd. It seems very awkward as we read this, that this would be an actual prayer between Jesus and the Father. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Okay, so is this like a normal prayer? Is is Jesus saying, "Hey, hey, God, uh, not not your or not my will, but yours be done"? Is this a normal prayer? It doesn't seem like it. It seems like he's preaching to his audience, is what it sounds like. And it sounds like John is including this prayer in this particular location to try to teach his audience something about Jesus. It's not like Jesus is trying to communicate information to God the Father about who he as Jesus Christ is, that'd be weird. This prayer doesn't make sense unless there's people listening in. Again, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So that's a request. That's a normal prayer thing. But it says, since you have given him authority over all flesh, it's like, okay, now what's happening? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is where the Calvinists start chiming in. They'll say, look at this. All whom you have given him. See, this is this is monergism. This is God unilaterally working. Well, as as we see throughout, it's it's not monergistic concept. Instead, we, we could uh, brainstorm some other ideas of what's happening here, other than monergistic metaphysics. And this is eternal life. Wow. So is, is Jesus explaining now to God the Father? what eternal life is. It, it looks like it. It On the face value, it looks like Jesus is praying to God the Father and telling him about eternal life and explaining to God the Father what eternal life means. Remember, this is in context of John, the apostle, capturing this prayer and communicating this to modern audiences at his time. So I don't think this line is for God the Father from Jesus. I think it's for the listeners. Uh, in both situations, both instances, the explanation of what eternal life is, is trying to teach people who are reading this prayer or listening to this prayer, something about that eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Remember, we talked about fledgling Christianity. They're not sure about Jesus's place in this theology. They don't know who Jesus is, his role in the book of Hebrews. It's interesting. It's like, do we even need Jesus anymore? Is Jesus important for this religion? Right. And that's where you get these phrases like Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Jesus Christ is important. This is being emphasized in John here that, look, we get an association between the only true God and Jesus Christ. You're going to see this association reinforced throughout this prayer. There's a reason this prayer is captured in John. It's not to teach Calvinist metaphysics. It's in order to teach the listeners that Jesus Christ has a place 
and a position in this newfound religion. It's to assure them that their following of Jesus is not in vain, that Jesus has some sort of authority and some sort of association with the Father. And you'll see these terms reinforced, that they're going to be associated with each other. And by proxy, followers of Jesus are also going to be associated but as followers of God. He says, <laughs> one second. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have gave me. Oh, he says, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ who you sent. We've covered that. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And so remember when Calvinists are talking about John, it's all about metaphysics. They th say, oh, this is about monergism, this unilateral calling and forcing of something to happen. And uh, that's not what Jesus is describing at all. He's describing this as a tasking. He says, I have a task to save those who the Father brings to me, and I accomplished this work. I accomplished this tasking. And now the Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the Lord world existed. This doesn't seem like it's quite as much of a request as it kind of looks like. It's instead, it looks like uh, more association for the listener uh, to associate Jesus with God. There's, there's this phrase about, bring me into your glory in your presence that I had with you before the world existed. It's teaching the listener something about Jesus and his place in this religion, rather than a meaningful communication from Jesus to the Father. And it's, it's pretty thematic throughout here. This prayer is not for God, it's for the listener. It's to tell them something. It's, there, there's a reason that this is included in John, and it's not to teach metaphysics. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So remember the situation that we're dealing with. The first converts into Christianity are basically Jews, uh, Yahweh worshipers, and even God-fearers, Gentiles, who accept the message of Jesus. And so it, you're, you're, what, what's happening here is you're, you're reassuring these people that them following Jesus not only associates them with the true God, but them accepting Jesus's word is evidence to that fact. It, this is an easy way to call this is it's a propaganda. It's, it's teaching people, it's associating in their mind, following Jesus with following God, saying you guys didn't err in following Jesus the Christ. He's associated with the God, and the proof of, of this is uh, that you're following Jesus, therefore you're following God. It's associating all these concepts, reassuring people that they have not gone wrong. Remember, this is decades after Jesus has died. Um, they still don't have an apocalyptic coming of a kingdom. People are starting to waver on the ministry of Jesus, which was pretty heavy in the apocalyptics. Right. And so that's why you get these kind of these doubts that flow throughout the New Testament. Like, where's the hope of his calling? Where, where's the hope of him returning? And then you have statements about him being long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but all come to truth because they're dealing with this, this very real situation 
in which they expected this coming kingdom that didn't materialize. All the believers in Acts, they sold their worldly possessions and they joined a commune with each other, which failed on technical grounds. And then they had to be fed. They, they had to fundraise for these people because they became broke and impoverished because of this. They were all expecting the eminent end of the world in which their commune would make sense. Uh, setting themselves apart, waiting for this coming kingdom would be beneficial to them. But long-term strategy, it's not a good long-term strategy, and it failed them in the long run. He says, <clears throat> I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they kept your word. So that's interesting. So they kept your word. Look at, remember, this is a Calvinist proof text. Calvinists think monergism uh, eternal declarations, predestination of all things. But look how many of those verbs are about people working, people doing things, people responding. A lot of them are people orientated. If a Calvinist had actually written this, if John, the disciple, was in fact a Calvinist, uh, <laughs> um, he might have written this differently. It says, he would have said, instead of this, they have kept your word, you caused them to keep your word, something like that. They would be all centered on God. The fact that a lot of these verbs are centered on man actions is evidence that this is not written by, in fact, the Calvinist. Now they have known that everything that you have given me is from you. Again, look at the associations. He's saying these people were gods and they came to me and they accepted God's message because they identified God's message in me that I was giving them, and they understand all these things. He, he's he's self-assuring all these followers of Jesus that they are doing God's will, that they're associated with God, that they've done the right thing. And so uh, Chris Jones asked, do you think God has decided to delay the second coming? Yes. Yes. And he says, I've always assumed that God wanted a big family, and that would take time. Yeah, for whatever reason, the the second coming did not happen. Um, a lot of these commu those communities fell apart. People died expecting the kingdom to soon arrive, and just never materialized. So for whatever reason, it was delayed or pushed back, canceled, modified in some respect. It just didn't occur. But we do have to still remember the context of when these these different works were written, what who they're written to, and what they're dealing with at the time. The big question at this time is not, what is the metaphysics of uh, salvation? Or what is the metaphysics of God's working in, in our, our lives, right? Uh, monergism or synergism, these are, these are not concepts at the time. That's not what they're dealing with. They're dealing with practical concerns. And the practical concerns at this time are people falling away because Christ's predictions didn't seem to materialize. And so what they need at the time is reassurance. Not only are they true worshipers of God, but Jesus is a true spokesman communicating the truths accurately from God and their association with Jesus Christ is in fact association with God. And what this prayer is doing is it's hitting all those main points over and over to try to assure them what they're doing is not in vain that they are still true followers of God. He says, they know that everything you have given me is from you. For, now this word for is because in some translations, 
typically it's translated as this is the reason why this prior thing happened. So if a Calvinist again was writing this, if John, uh, the disciple was in fact a Calvinist, he'd say, because, and he'd probably follow that up with God monergistically chose all these things to happen, but no, they know that everything that God has given Jesus is from God because I have given them the words that God, or because Jesus has given them the words that God gave Jesus. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that Jesus came from God and they have believed that Jesus or God sent Jesus, right? So th that's the reason. That's the reason that they know everything that's coming from Jesus is given from God. Again, it's reassuring the listeners. Like, like let's take the case that where someone's wavering in their faith and they're reading this. And uh, now they're in this, this moral dilemma, like, oh no, okay. <clears throat> I got a situation in which a close associate of Jesus is telling me that if I have doubts about what Jesus has preached, I'm not truly associated with God. Right. And so there, there's two effects to this type of writing. It assures people who are heavy believers that they're in the right. And then it, it squashes some doubts and people who are wavering like, OK, I better just not waver. It's better just to be associated with God by believing in the words of Jesus. This is this is complete uh, association. It's it, it is an emotional appeal and it's in the words of Jesus. So not only are they denying God, but they would be denying Jesus' direct words and denying John, who's writing this to them. You got to think about those multiple audiences. Who's Jesus talking to? All right, now it's recorded, and it's recorded at a later date. Recorded by who? Recorded by John. Who's John talking to? Who are the audiences in those diverse circumstances? Here's Drew. He says, I talk about this in our most recent episode. Oh, maybe I'll go watch that after this. That sounds pretty good. My kids are going crazy upstairs. So maybe maybe I should just sit them all down. And uh, they, they've had a lot of Bible today. They're probably very sick of me going over these things. We went through this John 17, me and them. It's like, who's the audience? And who are they talking to? And who's talking in these situations? And the kids have to think through what's going on and why. Remember, the Bible is advocacy. Things are included for reasons, and it's to teach people something about something. And this is just not a hodgepodge history to thrown together without without thought, without foresight, without without thinking through what's being communicated to the audience. This is advocacy, and what this is advocating, although it's it's presented in a historical context of a prayer given by Jesus, what it's doing is advocating for Jesus as. Uh, associate of God, preaching God's messages. Uh, the people who associate with Jesus are true believers in God the Father. That's what it's doing in the minds of the listener and in, in those who are reading. This is a practical concern to keep the church together. It's a practical concern to keep people worshiping Jesus, having Jesus have a place in Christianity, which again was a threat. Read Hebrews. They don't know the place of Jesus in Christianity. The book of Hebrews is written to assure Jesus's place in Christianity, which is odd to us today. It, it's really funny because we grow up in this culture where we are ingrained with, okay, the Bible is truth, accept the Bible, and to believe the Bible. We, we're, we grow up in this Christian community where then we read the Bible and we just we think it's just a hodgepodge of historical 
anecdotes that that don't necessarily tie together and don't have to prove the things that we ourselves have been taught to accept at early ages. Those things don't need to be proved to us. Those are already in our theological culture, right? It's just a different world that we're dealing with back then. He says, I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. Again, associating in the mind of the reader, followers of Yahweh, followers of God with followers of Jesus, saying they're one and the same. There, there's a practical dimension to how this is being spoken. And so what's Jesus's idea? I, I, I think people talk in generalities. Like if my kids uh, went to someone and said, hey, well, my dad has taught me everything I know about the Bible. Typically, that's just a generality. Like he's taught me a whole lot. Like a, the bulk of my knowledge I got from my dad, something like that. Or someone taught me everything I know about fishing. Same concept. And so I don't think Jesus is communicating here that every single follower of Yahweh was monergistically brought to Jesus the world around. Like, let's say there was someone who went to like Egypt, like a Christian or, or a God-fearer in Egypt. Then he, he had to like travel back to Jerusalem to be brought to Jesus, to become the true worshiper of, of God or anything like that. He's not saying like every single person who truly worshiped God was monergistically given or forced to uh, migrate, immigrate back to Jerusalem in order to hear my truths, anything like that. Instead, he's just saying generally those people who worship God truly were receptive to my message because they understood and identified but that my message was compatible and identical with the God the Father's message. So they associated the two, they used their minds to think about this, and then they became Christians. And if they didn't do that, they probably weren't real followers of God. And so God does have a part in this. Uh, they, he talks about drawing of God. And so those people who believe Jesus can also be self-assured. They can understand that God was working to bring them to this point, right? So this is, this is not... The, the, there, there is God working behind the scenes in order to make these things happen. God is looking out for his people to make sure those people hear his message. But again, in Jesus's mind, this is not metaphysics. This is not monergism. This is a tasking that he was given, and he boasts about this. He boasts about completing the tasking. And later on in the same chapter, uh, <laughs> later on, he talks, he talks about... Judas being the one exception. He said, you tasked me to keep everyone who has come to me. Um, I did that, except for there is one exception, Judas, he, but he doesn't really count. So I, it's not like, not like I lost this tasking because uh, he, he worked out for a certain purpose. So I'm still taking the win, even though on a technicality, you could say that I didn't complete that tasking. And so when we're reading the Bible, None of this speaks to Calvinist metaphysics. Remember, these guys love these verses. They'll quote these verses and they'll say, these are my metaphysics. But you have to read those metaphysics into the verses. You're not going to get them by just reading the verses. And God, God appearing to Jonah and, and compelling him through physical force to go to Nineveh is not the same idea as a monergistic spiritual drawing that's eternally predestined 
from before time to be, those things have to be read into the verse. They're not in the verse. And if you're reading the passage, it's very evident that not even the author nor Jesus being quoted in the passage follow those metaphysics. They don't think like that. They, they, don't, they don't contemplate in, in those terms. Jesus thinks this is a task. He's fulfilling a task. He's trying to get it done. He could fail conceivably the task. And so he could brag or, or glory in a fulfilling that task when that task is fulfilled. How does he fulfill that task? By doing practical measures, which have practical consequences. People use their minds to put pieces of evidence together and come to conclusions based on what Jesus brings them. All of this is practicality. None of it's metaphysics. It's not about an inward enlightening of a, a irresistible drawing of the spirit, anything like that. Jesus converted people. How did he convert people? By talking to them. How did these people come to hear that? God brought them to Jesus. It's very practical focus. People at that time frame in this area in Israel thought in practical terms, not metaphysical terms. And so that's what I'd like to talk about today. Uh, I thank you guys for joining me today. Uh, John 17, Calvinist proof text. It's just not talking metaphysics. It's talking practicality. It, it's, talk, it's, it's, it's propaganda first and foremost. It's uh, advocating to people alive decades after Jesus has died, advocating to them that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus does have a place in Christianity, Jesus is associated with God, and Jesus' words and ministry are true. All these things are in doubt. All these things need to be reinforced. God has actively brought people to Jesus because Jesus' message is true. You can have faith in Jesus because of this association. True believers in God are believers in Jesus. Anyways, questions, comments, put that down below or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening.